May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. A long time ago, in a different life, I taught a course at uh, Barkingley Polytechnic on managing community groups. Now, toy or my. One of the classes was about how we work with different cultures, and um, to help me do that, I would, uh, until she was killed in a car crash, uh, invite a colleague of mine to come in and take that class, a Māori colleague. And she would begin that class by getting people to think about what they would do if they won lotto. And then we'd put up all their answers on the whiteboard. And it was a really interesting way of introducing the idea of how culture shapes how we see the world. The Pākehā people generally uh, would talk about how they would buy themselves a house or a car or both, have a holiday uh, and some other things and then once they've done all those kind of things then uh, how they might help some of their family members or maybe give some money to some community groups. Probably most of us would do the same. I know that I would uh, up until I did this course, actually, and it made me think again. The Māori and Pacifica students in the class, however, would talk about how they would buy their parents' houses and cars, and how they would buy their siblings' houses and cars, and how they would help out other family members and community groups. And then, at the very end, if there was any money left, how they might buy themselves a house, or go on a holiday. They came last. Now there was no judgment in this. It was just an example of how we operate differently from different cultures. We can see that in how we introduce ourselves. For example, uh, generally if I'm uh, speaking somewhere I'll introduce myself with something like, I'm John, I'm a Franciscan priest in the Anglican tradition, I'm a vicar of St George's Anglican Parish, now I'm an archdeacon, a minister general, husband to Bonnie and I have some adult children. Depending on the, where I'm doing that I might put Bonnie nearer the top, <laughs> but generally not. But when Māori introduce themselves, they'll use a pepeha, and when, in a pepeha you begin with, well Māori around here would start with homoa to maunga. Mawao is my mountain, is the mountain. Kotoronga Moana to Moana. Kotoronga Moana is the sea. And some of them might then go on to say, Kowairo to Awa or Kowaimapu to Awa. Wairo or Waimapu is the river. And they would then go on to talk about the waka that their ancestors came on, their iwi, their hapu, their marae their whānau or family, who their parents are, and then last, who they are. It's a very different way of establishing identity. It's a very different way from how we do it. One of the important things that a pepeha does, it, is, it allows those who are listening to work out how they relate to the person who is speaking. Are they related to that person? Where do their whakapapa intersect? 
What are the points in their history or their geography that they connect? What are the bits of their story that hurts that relationship? And all of that allows for the building of relationship as the speaker begins. They know who they are and they can connect with that person. It's not better, it's just really different from how we do it. And it's a difference that we need to take note of because when we read scripture, the world that the biblical writers lived in and the world that the biblical writers were writing for was much closer to the Māori world than it is to our world. Our world is a pretty modern invention. It occurred with the invention of the printing press and in part the Protestant Reformation. So you can hear some Christian speakers decry the rise of individualism. Well, I mean, I decry that as well, but I also own that Christianity created individualism. That's what the Reformation did. It taught people that they, as individuals, were saved. And it started to break down those relationships within family and community. It placed the individual first. So that's only in the last 500 years or so that we have started thinking about ourselves as separate from our families or our wider community. And when I talk about families, in the biblical world, families was multi-generational. There was parents and all of their children and all of their children all living in the same place. So it wasn't about a husband and wife and their kids, as we understand it. It was multiple generations all living in the same place and kind of living like a commune. So it was a very different way of living. In the biblical world, the starting point was always the family and how that family related to the community. And that's still true around the world in many places today. And so honour killings in the Middle East, which are horrific, but those are all about how that person has dishonoured the family. The family comes first. The honour of the family comes first. The individual is simply part of the family whose job is to uphold the honour of the family. So why am I talking about this? Because as I read this week's Gospel reading, I was struck by how often I read the things that Jesus talked about today as being addressed to individuals around Jesus. The poor individuals and the rich individuals and to individuals today. But Jesus isn't speaking to individuals because individuals don't exist. Not as we understand that. Nothing in Scripture is written for individuals. Nor was it ever read by individuals. Scripture was always read by groups of people who then wrestled together with what the Scripture meant for them as a community, not as individuals. And that's still true in Judaism today. The rabbis are taught in schools where they learn what other rabbis have said in their discussions in community and then they talk about that and wrestle with it. And then they write things about that and debate that. 
so that together they can work out what those scriptures mean. At the heart of all scripture is God's desire that humanity live as God intended, in life-giving community with each other, in ways that allow all people to thrive and all life to thrive. This vision of true community was at the heart of Martin Luther King's preaching, his preaching about the promised land where all could thrive. He called that the beloved community. It's what the word shalom points to. We usually translate shalom as peace, and we then think peace is somehow the absence of violence. But shalom is when true community is established. Then there will be God's peace on earth. It's really all about wholeness and completion. And when things are as God intended, then there will be peace. So shalom is much more than peace. It is the beloved community. So I at least need to remind myself that when I read scripture, we need to read it from that point of view. That this is not about something for a moral handbook for individuals. This is about how we create community. And that changes sometimes how we read it. For example, the law of Moses, I can remember when it was announced a gazillion years ago that I was leaving teaching down at Blenheim and going off to our theological college and one of my fellow science teachers said, oh, that's what we need in our world today. People need to live by the moral code of the, good, of the Ten Commandments. So he read those Ten Commandments as a moral code for individuals to live by. And we often do, a moral code for individuals. But the law of Moses was not a moral code for individuals. It supplied the foundation which allowed communities to grow and to thrive. And it warned against those things that would break and damage that community. So this dream of the life-giving community, the beloved community, was at the heart of the law, it's at the heart of the history books, it's at the heart of the wisdom tradition, it's at the heart of what the prophets were on about, including Isaiah. The year of the Lord's favour, which Jesus quoted from the prophet, as set out in the law, and longed for by the prophets, is when all those things that have led to broken community are set aside and the reset button is pushed so that the people of God can begin again to live together in ways that all might thrive. For the Gospel writers, Jesus stood in the tradition of the prophets, particularly Isaiah. In Luke, a couple of weeks ago, we heard Jesus quoting from Isaiah in his home synagogue in Nazareth. And if we were reading the Gospel of Luke from beginning to end as it was intended, we would have just heard that. In Luke, we have heard... Ah, oh, sorry, just said that. So when he quotes from Isaiah... He says that he is the fulfillment of all Isaiah hoped for. Luke is saying that Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of God's desire, as spoken through the prophets.
for the restoration of life-giving community, or as Martin Luther King would call it, the beloved community. So when we read passages like today's Sermon on the Plain, we need to read it with all that in mind. This isn't about individuals. This is about how do we build life-giving community. So this passage, the Sermon on the Plain, or the Sermon on the Level Place, is often seen as a poor cousin to Matthew's much better known Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. So when we have the Beatitudes, it always goes to Matthew. Although, Luke has the equivalent. And I think that is in part because this version in Luke's Gospel is a little less comfortable for many of us who might be reading it. As we saw last year, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel plays a pivotal role. It kind of holds the essence of what Matthew was offering. Unlike Matthew's Gospel, Luke sets his Beatitudes not on a sacred high place, but on a level place, on a plain, which is not sacred. At best, it is an ordinary place, and this ordinary place is filled with broken people. And in Luke's version of the story, he has just come from choosing his disciples from among the many who are following him. So he did that up on a mount, and he comes down to the level place. And as he returns, he returns to the throngs of people who are seeking him from all over the place. So Luke's geography is a bit haywire, but he's basically saying people from all over the place are coming. From all over Judea, all up the coast. I'm not sure why he left out Galilee. Maybe they didn't want to go there and they've already had enough. So these are like Tyre and Sidon is Lebanon. So these are big distances. That's what he's trying to say. From all over the place. And he returns to this throng of people, poor people, sick people, people possessed by demons, desperate people, broken people. This is what broken community looks like. And this is not the way of God. These people are impoverished, dispirited, overtaxed, exploited, hopeless. They long for the year of the Lord's favour. When we read of Jesus' healing, we often see Jesus healing individuals, and yes, individuals were healed. But in doing so, he also healed families and communities. Those people were restored. The relationships within those families were restored. The relationships within those communities were restored. The ripples of those healings were much greater than just the sick person was now well. This had communal repercussions. When Jesus casts out demons, Jesus is casting out the spirits that destroyed communities. These are stories of Jesus confronting all that destroys true community. Disease, evil spirits, and in today's teaching, the spirit of greed and idolatry. In the midst of these broken people from broken communities, Jesus teaches his new disciples a series of blessings and woes. 
So we heard two sets of blessings and woes today. So there was this set from uh, from Luke's gospel, and there was a set that Josie read from us from Jeremiah. And the words that are used for blessing and woe are different. So in the Jeremiah ones, the woes are you are condemned. So that is a straight up curse, and the blessing is is a blessing. The words used in Luke's gospel are different. So as we saw last year, the word blessing here is about honour. So when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, we often read that as, oh, well, they're blessed, and then we don't have to do anything about it. Because they're blessed, and God will look after them. But Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus is saying, you, the poor, are the most important people. You are the people of greatest honour. You should take priority. Because when you take priority, then we can build true community. Because in the kingdom of God, the beloved community, they are of greatest importance. But that's not how his society worked, and it's certainly not how our society works. And this, living this out, got Jesus into a lot of trouble. So much trouble that they crucified him. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Among the most important people are those who hunger. Because in the kingdom of God, they are of the greatest worth. And so we go on. And let's face it, that's a lot less comfortable than blessed are the poor in spirit. So we tend to go for Matthew's version because it's the more comfortable version. Later Jesus offers some warnings to those who are rich, not to individuals, but to those families and groups whose wealth is built on the surrounding poverty. The families and groups whose actions and priorities are destroying true community. But they are not condemned. The word here, woe, isn't a curse, although sometimes it is translated as that. It's more, woe, look out. I mean, the Greek word is literally woe. And it means, look out, beware. There's an opportunity to change. Because these people, through their idolatry to greed and wealth and power, are breaking community. And Jesus is saying, you need to get on board. This is not the way of God. You need to change your ways so that true community can be established. What Jesus is doing here is basically part two of what he began when he read from the scroll of Isaiah in Nazareth. And it is a continuation of all of what Luke has been offering in his gospel so far. So it echoes Mary's song of protest. And it nods to the fact that in Luke's Gospel, it's not the wealthy and powerful who are told of the coming Saviour, it's shepherds who are about as low down the honour scheme as you can get. It lays out the value system that lies at the heart of the year of the Lord's favour. And it is, whether we know it or not, what we are praying for every time we pray the prayer that Jesus teaches us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. 
This value system is at the heart of true community, beloved community, God's community. The kind of community that is life-giving for all and for all life. The kind of community that Isaiah longed for. The kind of community that Jesus came to bring about is still working to bring about today. God's Spirit is at work in the world today, continuing to inspire people to live in the beloved community, living out these Beatitudes. So what does all that mean for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand? What would it look like if the most important people were the poorest, were the homeless, were the hungry? What would Aotearoa New Zealand look like if all our resources went to solving those issues and creating true community so that there were no poor, no homeless, no hungry? What would it look like if we were to take the Sermon on the Plain really seriously? And what does it look like in the shadow of COVID? I know that in many ways we all long to go back to how things were before. We want our old lives back. People keep saying that. That's what the protests around the world are about. It's what the protests down in Wellington are about. They just want to go back to how things were in 2019. Well, we can't go back. Not really. And COVID showed us just how broken our communities are in places. So I wonder what kind of community we would like to build instead. And I wonder what the Spirit of Jesus is inviting to us to in these words today. As we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, what is it we're praying for? And how might we live that out?